welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. Once again, I want to start by thanking everyone that supports the podcast via Patreon. Your contribution makes a huge difference to the quality and regularity of the episodes. So a huge thank you to you all. And if you want to pledge a pound, a euro or a dollar to each episode, please visit the Words Matter podcast Patreon page. Otherwise, please just enjoy the show and share it as far and as wide as possible. In this episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Carlo Martini. Carlo is an Associate Professor of Philosophy of Science in the Faculty of Philosophy at Vita Salu San Rafael University in Milan and Visiting Fellow and Adjunct Professor at the Centre for Philosophy of Social Science at the University of Helsinki. His primary research interests are in the philosophy of social sciences, social epistemology and science communication. Carlo worked on the role of expertise and knowledge transfer from science to policy, on scientific disinformation and public trust in scientific experts. He's currently leader of the Work Package Behavioural Tools for Building Trust in the H2020 Project Parishia, which is the Policy, Expertise and Trust Project. And we speak about Carlo's work on the Parishia Project in part two. So in this episode we speak about the nature of expertise and the different conceptions of it. We distinguish between genuine and bogus or pseudo-expertise and we talk about some of the attributes of expertise and that expertise is more than just knowledge acquisition or hours of practice or years of experience in a particular field. We talk about the purpose and function of expertise and if experts don't get better outcomes then what's the point? We talk about the role of tacit knowledge and expertise and distinguish between knowing that and knowing how. We talk about how we recognise expertise, how it is perceived and whether or not expertise is just in the eye of the beholder. We talk about expert judgement and models of decision making and we situate these in the context of evidence-based practice. And we talk about Carlo's collaboration with the Course Health Project and he links expertise with the adoption of person-centred care and we allude to situations where more practitioner-led care might be the more person-centred approach to take. And now's a good time to point you towards the phenomenal Course Health series of 16 episodes which explore the book with the author of each chapter. And I've linked the book and the podcasts in the show notes. And finally we question the notion of patient as expert And we both reflect on a paper written by a late colleague of mine, Professor Stephen Tyerman, who wrote an article also critically evaluating the notion of patient as expert. And I've linked the paper in the show notes. And it deserves to be restated that the Course Health series was dedicated in memory of Stephen, owing to the incredible contribution and impact he had on Course Health and colleagues and students alike. So this was a brilliant conversation with Carlo which brought together several areas which the podcast has explored, evidence-based medicine, causation, knowledge and philosophy and practice, 
in order to get a handle on what expertise is and the implications for the different conceptions that we arrive at. And in part two, we talk about the public perception and confidence and trust in expertise, so be sure to tune into that. So I bring you Dr. Carlo Martini. Carlo, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Oliver. Nice to be here. So maybe you could start by introducing yourself and the sorts of work that you're doing and how you describe what you do. So I'm a philosopher of science and I work at the uh, Vita Salute San Raffaele University in Milan. Uh, I'm an associate professor there. My work revolves mostly around the notion of expertise. I'm interested in all kinds of expertises, really, but I guess primarily on what we would call um, cognitive expertise. So in that context, I'm also interested in communication. Um, And in general, I'm interested in policy. So the bridge between the, let's say, hard science basis and the application to to policy. I've also written on the nature of expertise, so trying to define uh, what is an expert, and also trying to help people, lay people, uh, understand what expertise is and what an expert is, which is a bit more difficult task than experts trying to recognize each other. And so, yeah, when I saw, how did I come to know your work? Um, I think that, so you wrote a chapter in a, in a routinage book, pretty much named Epistemology of Expertise, and just the title itself really grabbed me. It seemed to to point to getting to the bottom, if you like, you know, but certainly the foundations of what the nature and the conception of expertise is. And it seems to be that, as you said, that it, the notion of expertise or a notion of expertise really permeates all of our lives, whether you're a person living a life or a clinician or a politician or a scientist, but trying to figure out what seems to be the essence of good, and I'm using kind of air quotes here, good practice or good, you know, good policy or just good performance, good thinking, and trying to figure out what that's about and how to get it mm-hmm. would be a pretty important pursuit for, for any area of, of kind of life. I like that you said that uh, expertise permeates uh, kind of everything. It's, it's the essence of, um, let's say, humans as social beings. So, you know, relying on each other, uh, it requires expertise in at all stages, let's say, all, all, all walks of life, let's say. And it requires also trust in expertise. So the need to trust each other. Now, there can be obstacles, of course, there, you know, we might uh, misplace trust. So it's very important to try to understand the difference between genuine expertise and only apparent expertise. And of course, this goes to the fundamental problem of, well, what what is really expertise? And indeed, there are some 
accounts, some, some people would say that actually expertise is equivalent to perceived expertise. So a doctor is a doctor because they have a degree, they have a, a, a certificate. Now, I don't quite buy that view. I think expertise is the substantial possession of fundamentally two traits, two characteristics, if you wish to call them so. One is um, experience and one is competence. They refer to, uh, I call them the backward-looking component and the forward-looking component. So you need, when you have experience, and the reason why you need experience is because you need practice in a certain field. Usually it's a very narrow field, uh, but it depends. There can be something like interdisciplinary expertise, which is not as narrow. Uh, but you need practice in a field. Some popular science has talked about the 10,000 hour rule. Yeah. You, know, you need 10,000 hours to become an expert in violin playing or computer programming. And that, that came from, from chess, right? That was the Simmons, Simons, Simons and Simons or Simons and someone where it was somewhat a simplistic way of looking at skill acquisition, I think. Right. And of course, as you say, it's, it's a simplistic way, but the, the message is clear. You need a long time of practice in a field to become an expert in, in that field, but that's not quite enough. Um, you need to be able to apply whatever skills or whatever um, knowledge you have learned to other new problems, uh, novel problems. So some people think that mm. the that it's even more essential that you can apply your skills to new problems. If if you only know how to solve already resolved problems, then according to some people, you you would have no expertise. And this is competence. So competence is forward-looking. It it goes into like uncharted yeah. waters. But just to hang on that novelty of the situation or the problem, it would seem to me that expertise would require you to even recognise that the, the problem situation is novel in the first place and it's something, a new encounter or, or a new kind of collection of symptoms or whatever the problem might be. So you'd need to be able to recognize that, have some insights and some reflexivity about that and about your position in relation to your experience. And then to address that problem, you need to have some creativity in how you're thinking about that problem because it's a new problem, which might be amenable to previous ways of practice or thinking. But so to me, it suggests that there's an, I mean, there's an artistic sense or creativity to how one manages that problem. It's not like a simple maths equation where you would just right. do what you, do you know what I mean? There's, there's some complexity there, which might require some innovation in, in practice or thinking. Um, yeah, I'm not really sure I would call it creativity. Certainly you need a certain level of what's called tacit knowledge. Tacit knowledge is such that it can't be communicated and transmitted in standard codified means. So textbooks or podcasts or or maybe podcasts, I don't know, but textbooks, research articles, right. curriculum, well, language, yeah. Language. 
So exactly. So language is a, a codification of something that you know we we can communicate. And um, I mean, the, the nice example is um, uh, pizza making. Can you codify how to make pizza dough? So can I give you? extremely precise verbal instructions in written or oral form that will guide you to create as good pizza dough as well mm. supposedly i could make but you're italian so of course you can make good pizza right <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe no stereotypes on this podcast <laughs> right yeah <laughs> so uh tacit knowledge is of a different kind so most people would say, well, if I really want to teach someone how to make pizza dough, I should actually do it mm. with them. We should practice together, do it together. We should communicate. But it's not that I can just communicate directly the instructions. On the other hand, if I want to explain to you how to do two plus two, I, I can give you precise instructions and most likely you'll mm. be able to do that in a reasonable amount of time, you'll be able to learn that. So tacit knowledge, I think, also plays a part in the ability to recognize new new problems and to recognize whether a problem is part of a class of problems that you have already studied or something altogether different. Psychology is very good in this field. I haven't mentioned that the field of expertise and the knowledge about expertise is a very interdisciplinary field. There are psychologists uh, studying it, epistemologists, I'm an epistemologist, but also cognitive scientists, um, economists, and so on. And um, psychologists have uh, studied uh, something called discrimination ability. So the ability to discriminate between two problems that might look very similar, but are not quite the same problem. And some psychologists they correlate the ability, the discrimination ability with expertise. So the more expertise, the more discrimination ability. Mm -hmm. Of course, this is one trait. There are many more. That's fascinating. And I wanted just to just to go back a few steps to your example of pizza making or pizza dough making. And, and I suppose just think about how much of... Exp how much, not necessarily in a quantitative sense, but it seemed to me that what makes a good painter or pizza dough maker or clinician, much of that practice is embedded in some sort of action that's hard to communicate some of these intuitions or the tacit knowledge that people possess and that it's it's in the doing, if you like, that knowledge is embedded in, in action or embedded in the doing. And I think we spoke previously about Gilbert Ryle maybe and knowing that and knowing how. And mm -hmm. that yeah. the notion of kind of knowing that is this awareness or this propositional knowledge that you just know facts and it might be a mm -hmm. list of ingredients for the pizza dough or list of anatomy or physiological processes, whereas the knowing how is is more embedded in, in what you do. So you can show someone how to make the dough or show someone how to do some um, clinical examination, which is hard to communicate. So maybe just say something about that. Yeah, that's right. It's it's a very useful distinction. Um, I mentioned at the very beginning, I'm a, more focused, let's say, on on cognitive expertise, meaning the the knowing what. And of course, um, the two are not entirely distinct one from the other. But you can think of um, 
extremes, for example, riding a bicycle is most likely know-how, either or almost entirely know-how. Then on the other hand, if you think riding a bicycle in traffic, well, then you also need some know-what. You need to know the signs, and that can be codified easily. But the, the act of riding is probably 99% know-how. Uh, on the other hand, there are other types of expertise that require a significant amount of know-what, so propositional knowledge. Um, for example, you come to me with, or maybe I come to you actually, with a bunch of symptoms, and maybe you can tell me, I think you have this kind of medical issue in um, your shoulder, for example. Clearly clinical Quite a bit of clinical expertise is a combination of know-how and know-what. And I imagine that some specialization might involve more know-how and some might involve more um, know-what. I imagine maybe a surgeon who needs to do very delicate surgery, they actually do need very specific motor skill, mm. the development of specific motor skills to perform certain kinds of surgeries. Maybe a doctor who does mostly consultation, for example, they might have more know what, but it's still useful to be able to distinguish between the two, because this also then allows us to try to understand how we can recognize expertise of course, it's very different to recognize know-what and know-how expertise. And we'll, we'll get to, to that because earlier mm -hmm. you said genuine expertise. Right. And that's in itself is who judges expertise. I've just been preparing for an episode with someone that you know, Martin Cush, who's a relativist. And mm -hmm. from that position, there is no real God's eye view, is there, of expertise. It's it's kind mm -hmm. of locally situated. But maybe if we start by how would you describe expertise and maybe make some distinctions between, or, or rather, yeah, and maybe what some of the common thoughts around expertise are, maybe from the public, is a carpenter an expert? Is a hairdresser an expert? Is is it just is it just the professions that hold expertise? So maybe dive into, into that. That's probably a good start, I think. Right, there are all all kinds of expertises, what you mentioned, a carpenter, a hairdresser, but even speaking a language is a type of expertise. It's only that if we speak our own language, we don't really perceive it as expertise. On the other hand, if we're learning a new language, then that actually requires um, quite a bit of effort and it requires the acquisition of, uh, of a new type of expertise, playing an instrument, of course. Now, I'm particularly interested in uh, scientific expertise. So the kind of expertise that refers to our scientific practices from economics to, say, physics to medicine, of course. And here's where I think it's important to distinguish between genuine and, let's say, bogus expertise or pseudo-expertise. The term scientific is a value-laden term. So whenever we say that something is scientific, we are not really only describing a characteristic of whatever we describe as scientific. Let's say this is scientific knowledge. It's not about just the, 
about the description of the type of knowledge that we have, but it's a value-laden term in the sense that we attach value to the word scientific. So if I'm telling you this scientific knowledge, this treatment has been scientifically proven, what I mean is that you should trust it. And of course, this, this is good because we are attaching value to something we think is valuable, the scientific uh, method or the methods of science that we think are reliable that have been developed over many centuries. But of course, this opens the door to possible exploitation, let's say. I can use the label scientific in, or I can misuse the label for all kinds of purposes. And I guess we will get to talk about that maybe a little bit later. But the important point here is that the term pseudo expertise helps us recognize that whenever we're in front of someone who that we perceive as an expert, that is still something that they call putative expertise. So putative expertise is the first step. So for example, when I, you contacted me and I saw your name and then I saw that there is a um, um, doctor title maybe in front of your name, something like that. So that gives me a first impression of who you are. And I take it you're a putative expert in the sense that at least you have a certain title. Now, that's not quite yet expertise, I think. That's why I think expertise is substantial. Maybe you're misusing the title, but even imagining you're not misusing the title, maybe you tell me something about medicine, and I know you would never do that, but maybe you have a conflict of interest in what you're saying. Uh, well, that tarnishes expertise. It, it creates a situation in which an expert claim is not expert anymore. Or maybe you are, your field, let's say your field of expertise is pancreatic cancer. And I come to you with the joint problem. I should have used the reverse, but never mind. Then you might be speaking outside of your field of expertise. So your expert claim actually loses its expert status. So there's a distinction between what we would call putative expert and genuine expert. And the putative expert is someone who is most possibly an expert. We, we recognize that there are some traits there, but we need to think more, do more investigation. And how we do that, how we can do that is by using what I call proxies of expertise. Proxies of expertise are, of course, the classic one, someone's uh, CV, someone's um, his uh, record of experience, someone's titles, of course, um, but also evidence from someone's possible conflicts of interest and so on. And these all direct us to recognizing either competence or experience. Mm. And so when you say we recognize expertise or it, so, and going back to your pancreatic cancer um, joint thing, you know, I've got members of my family who are in specialist fields of medicine, for example, stroke, for example, and 
other family members will go to those family members with knee pain or so-and-so uncle Dave said, you know, this is wrong with my knee, but he's never examined the knee or not since he was probably at medical school. But to my family member, that person has the expertise because they're a medical doctor. There's no interest in necessarily the specialism. But you're suggesting that actually that's, that despite the family member perceiving expertise there and that it's, it's within their kind of gaze, you're saying from a more, I want to use the word objective, but there's something when you say we, it's kind of this more distant consensus that actually despite individuals may, may recognizing expertise in different fields or within amongst different people, that's not, that expertise is really an illusion that then it's not there. And when we think more deeply or examine more closely, that person doesn't exhibit those expertise, which is initially perceived. I wouldn't go that far, but it depends on my goal, right? If I have a pain in my joint and um, I don't know whom to ask, clearly going to, let's say in my family, there is a doctor, um, it's a first step and it's probably a good step. Clearly any doctor or, well, hopefully, let's say any doctor would have some kind of expertise in little bit of everything that regards the human body, uh, certainly more than a carpenter or a plumber. That doesn't mean that that expertise is sufficient for a certain goal. So it, it, it depends a bit on the goal. I might have given the impression that expertise comes in um, on-off switch, and that's definitely not what I think is the case. There is more or less expertise And in fact, I myself might have some expertise on my own joint pain. Maybe I've had it in the past and maybe I noticed that it flares up when, like after a long run, for example. Well, that seems to be relevant knowledge for the problem. But certainly I wouldn't have the kind of expertise to know, for example, what's happening in the tissues of my joints when the pain is when when I'm perceiving the pain and so on. So there can be more mm. or less expertise for any given field. And what we can do by using proxies of expertise yeah. is try to understand, first of all, if there is any expertise at all, because there might be clear cases in which there is no expertise at all. So let's take highly specialized fields like gravitational wave physics, well, most likely there are quite few people in the world who really have some kind of expertise on that, you know, maybe in the thousands or, I don't know, tens of thousands, just making it up now, I I don't really know. So first of all, we, we might want to understand whether there is any expertise in the first place. And if there is, then how much expertise. So maybe I'm also a bit relativist about expertise in the sense that there can be more or less. And of course, it's it's a social construct to some extent. So if I'm on a remote island, let's imagine I'm a Robinson Crusoe and I'm cast away on on a desert island and I have some joint pain. Well, clearly, I'm the only expert in the island on joint pain in, mm-hmm. in that situation. 
you're more expert than the the monkeys and the birds, which <laughs> right. other species exist. Something like that. But if I'm luckily in a, in a big city and I get pain in my joint, then I can easily contact a few doctors and, and um, experts who probably will have more knowledge than I do. The only, the only caveat here that I would add is that the relativity of my expertise is not unbounded. So, th- so there are boundaries that are determined by empirical matters. How many hours have I spent on medical books? How many patients have I seen? Mm. And so on and so forth. These are empirical boundaries that determine whether there is or isn't expertise. And maybe now is a good time to get to the purpose or function of expertise. And and I suppose, again, bring it back to healthcare and you can give some other examples or, or context, but thinking about you being on a desert island with no one else or a family member that goes to another family member that, which isn't skilled necessarily in that specialism, if the outcome of your joint pain is that, so the, the perceived expert gives you some advice, either it's the other person on the island with you or my family member gives you know, some advice to to my family member that's seeking kind of medical advice, if they get better, right, then that's kind of the proof was in the pudding that those expertise sufficed to get the desired outcome for which the expertise were sought. And so I suppose what I'm trying to do in a slightly clumsy way is to is to ask the question, does expertise, should expertise lead to a better outcome, whether it's a decision, a healthcare outcome, some kind of physics experiment or or not what's the purpose of expertise ultimately right so it's very interesting you bring this up because it's a bit of a thorny point obviously if we are dealing with any kind of practical uh, practically oriented let's say expertise it seems obvious to say that the the outcome should be there, there should be a good outcome and, and you should judge someone's expertise by the good outcome or, or bad. Or at least compared to the non-expert. Or at least comparing. The outcome might still be death or right. whatever it might be, but certainly better than, I don't know what's better than, I don't know what's worse than death, but you know. <laughs> well, then we go into the realm of values. I mean, maybe, <laughs> I don't know, for some people, life in an iron lung might be worse. I, I don't know, yeah. but yeah. So, you know, if, if, if the plumber comes to fix your toilet, well, you, you want to be able to use the toilet, right? In the end, if, if you can't use the toilet because it's still flooding, well, then clearly the plumber hasn't done a good job. Now, the problem with highly technical and highly complex types of expertise and, and also highly complex problems in the first place is that it's not always so easy to determine whether the outcome has been successful or not. I guess in the field of medicine and healthcare, we should, I think, in principle, be able to to tell. Or, or if we are not, then we should maybe sit down and try to think more clearly about what would be a good outcome. I mean, there is a lot of talk about the 
deliberative model in patient care. And of course, if the outcome of a procedure is that I have to live, you know, maybe I, I don't know, I, I have a problem and someone saves my hand, but I lose both my legs. Well, mm. maybe I wanted it the other way around. But there are, there are other cases in which, which one is the good outcome is not always so obvious. So whenever you're, you're dealing with risky situations, uh, sometimes the outcomes can be, they can be weighed and then it depends on, on values. So in all these cases, I'm getting a bit uh, off topic, but I, I go back to the point of expertise. In all these cases, it's not always so easy to judge expertise by the outcome. So ideally, I would say, yes, that should be one of the criteria for judging an expert. And that goes in the track record. So it, it's very, it's very um, easy with weather forecasters, mm-hmm. you know, they have a track record and it's very quantitative kind of easy to keep track. And and we also know from some literature that weather forecasters can improve their forecasts by getting feedback about their track record. So I suppose to to, to flip flip it around, and I'm asking this question with with a particular study in mind, but one way of thinking, no, one way of understanding or trying to get some grasp on the nature of expertise is to look at people that do things well, I'm guessing. So if we just took a bunch of weather forecasters that just got the correct forecast, right, and then examined mm-hmm. the attributes that they have and the processes and methods that they went through or go through, would that lead us to, rather than just a random bunch of forecasters or forecasters have got it wrong and we looked at what do they do well, what are the characteristics and attributes that they have, do you get a sense that we would actually get a better handle if we could somehow understand what those qualities were of those accurate forecasters, that would tell us a bit more about expertise. Yes, I agree. If we could get a good understanding of what a good forecast is, for example, or if we get, if we could get a good uh, understanding and a good grasp of what a good health outcome is, uh, I mean, that's the first step. What I'm saying is that the the caveat is that in some field it's very difficult to get a good grasp of that at the beginning so then your picture of expertise should be a little more nuanced than only success you know even success unfortunately sometimes it can be faked um you know good communication might create good success stories but maybe the there isn't like real in a sense success so and then there are fields where success uh, when, when you can sort of artificially get uh, successful stories for example like lots of astrologies very successful in making predictions but you know the, the predictions that the astrologers make are really not of any interest to anyone and they're not like useful to you know, to, to, to anyone probably so i think basing our judgment of what expertise is or isn't only on success is not quite enough. We have to look at a more comprehensive picture of experts and expertise to try to understand and tell the difference between bogus experts and genuine experts. 
And I think what we didn't do, and perhaps you sh- I should have done at the beginning, is to, because you, you've written a fair bit on evidence-based mm-hmm. practice or evidence-based medicine and expertise in the context of that theory of practice. And if we kind of all picture the, the Venn diagram of research evidence, mm-hmm. patient values and preferences, and then the cer- third circle of clinical experience or expertise, and maybe now's a good time to discuss where expertise or where you see expertise sits within that triad of kind of knowledge domains. In the evidence-based movement, let's say, the, or in, in, in evidence-based practice, actually, mm-hmm. even better, there are two moments, or at least, let's say, um, there could be more, but I think there are at least two moments in which expertise is important. In some cases, we need expertise in order to get knowledge in the first place. So sometimes we we learn about a disease simply by, let's say, running a test, for example, like some blood test or some uh, CT scan or whatever. But there are exceptions, right? I mean, there are there are difficult cases. In, in which you actually need the subjective contribution of a clinician's opinion, a clinician's informed opinion, or even a team of clinicians just to get some knowledge of a patient. What is the issue with, with this patient, right? One myth has been that the evidence-based movement would replace clinical expertise that was never really the intention. It's possible that some, let's say, some believers in evidence-based medicine and evidence-based clinical practice and so on, they, it's possible that some people saw an opportunity to do, like, to, to work less and less with, you know, physicians and so on. We, we can kind of replace uh, expertise with guidelines and so on, uh, but clearly this wasn't the the, inten- the the initial intention, and and this isn't actually what can be done in the first place. You you can't like replace it altogether. So the expert is important still in the creation of knowledge in a specific range of cases, but of course if I need to take your temperature. I shouldn't pretend that by putting my hand on your forehead and thanks to my experience and competence mm-hmm. as a doctor, I could reliably tell the temperature. I mean, just use a thermometer. It's much better, you know. So uh, there you have it. It's, that's evidence-based in a sense. So this is one, one moment. The second moment is when you need to integrate knowledge so when you have knowledge coming from slightly different fields, knowledge coming from, in the case of health, it could be different specialists contributing to you know, analyzing a patient and so on. And, and integrating knowledge is something that machines are not always so great at doing. It's, it's, it can be quite difficult sometimes to, to integrate different types of knowledge together. So then I think expertise becomes very, very important in evidence-based practice. And integrating knowledge is also 
part of integrating knowledge is also applying general guidelines to specific cases, then you also need quite a large contribution from from experts. And I know that you're aware and were at some point involved in Cause Health, I think. Yes. And the Cause Health movement or project. I'm still involved to some extent. We are but we, at the time we organized a workshop together, I, I had my own project from the, I was a member of the University of Helsinki at the time. I had my own project on evidence causation and argumentation. So the idea is there is, there is that you, you have evidence and you use evidence to try to infer causation. That's what we're interested in, right? If we're interested in scientific phenomena, then it's uh, almost all about causation, right? And what you need to go from evidence to to causation is, is an argument, is argumentation you need. And, and of course, in my own, let's say, word, argumentation is equivalent to expertise to some extent. Uh, sometimes you can automate an argument, but in most cases you need you need an expert to make an argument. So we collaborated and we, yeah, we, we organized the workshop together. And uh, um, I think I'm still affiliate to the project to some extent, yes. Because they would say something like that the, the causal story that the patient and the clinician construct together, that's, you know, that's got power by which you can begin to apply some of this knowledge or evidence, if you like. And I suppose getting back to maybe the characteristics of expertise is that it would seem to me that the the ability to to apply the evidence to the person to the individual person to the individual situation or circumstance there's a whole set of competencies and skills needed there to relate to the person to communicate with the person to have some sort of insight into their illness experiences their values their goals, all, all, all that stuff, which makes the application of the the research evidence all the more powerful and useful. So there, there, it would seem that there's an area of expertise which is really quite soft and removed from the hard sciences, if you like this. It's a more kind of social, relational skill set. Right, you're... As you were talking, I was thinking exactly in terms of soft. So you, you need hard knowledge and also soft knowledge at the same time. And by hard knowledge, I mean, of course, you need competence in reading clinical reports, for example, all, all that kind of knowledge. But um, there's there's a component of soft knowledge, yeah. the, just the, the ability to communicate. I haven't really... I haven't worked directly on this topic, but a PhD student of mine actually is working on doctor-patient communication. So we we have a protocol together with the doctors and we're trying to learn more about communication by listening in to doctor-patient communication. Of course, it's all very complex. You know, we, we have a ethical approvals and it's it's all following the standards and, and um, requirements of privacy and all of that. 
but we we're trying exactly to to understand better communication between doctors and their patients and vice versa and especially to understand how this affects care how it affects the end result uh, and clearly well of course we have different models of this type of communication there are the famous uh, four models by Emmanuel and Emmanuel right and the the preferred model there was the deliberative model in which the clinician the expert and the patient are discussing both of course symptoms and so on but also values and preferred outcomes mm. so yeah usually that's that's the preferred model but it's it's a model which puts quite a big burden on the patient in a sense like you need patients who are quite prepared quite you know who who are also who have the ability to be maybe self-reflective and to to really think in in order for the deliberative model to work it might be paradoxical i don't know but it could be that sometimes the paternalistic model might be more fit towards some patients two things one is to just uh, mark a previous podcast with dr charlotte aubrey which was episode 47 and she's a conversation analyst and has done lots of work looking at the conversation between clinicians physicians and patients from a ca point of view so really analyzing the structure and machinery of that conversation just to send people to, to that episode but also then to jump on about patients as experts we both recently read a paper by a late colleague of mine Stephen Tyreman that wrote a paper titled an expert in what and yeah and really kind of questioning the expertise that patients have and I suppose there was a reaction from that paternalistic model to say well let's just move all the power to the patient the patient really does know best mm -hmm. and we just have to listen to the patient and they'll tell us I mean I, I'm slightly simplifying and probably straw manning it a little bit but there was certainly an emphasis and still is an emphasis very much and even in my own practice I most definitely give primacy to the patient to tell their story and I'm deeply interested in their views and their preferences and values and all that kind of stuff but maybe you can balance that a bit and just expand a bit on what you were saying that it can be a burden. Perhaps patients don't have expertise in certain areas or they they have a good insight into their illness experience, but not to their mm -hmm. disease processes. But then it makes me think you could sit with a patient and explain the anatomy of the knee. And actually after half an hour, they would have some expertise in the knee. So yeah, sort it all out for us. Well, yeah, that, that article was, very useful in well stressing uh, this distinction between the illness and, and the disease uh, i'll link it in the show notes for, for those that want to to read it right yeah yeah that's uh, that would be a good good point and clearly the um the the patient has expertise about their their illness but not necessarily about the disease um if we think of the disease as a biological let's say process now, the reason why I was saying that in some cases it, we, we should be open to at least the theoretical possibility that sometimes a paternalistic model might work better is that any type of cognitive engagement between a patient and their physician is, of course, demanding 
for the patient. So that it, it puts some kind of burden to some extent. So even just the ability to reflect upon your own symptoms and to reflect upon your own, for example, your own ability to stick to a cure, this can be burdensome to some extent. So again, I mean, the jury is out. We we are working, we are um, trying to learn more about communication and actually the there is some, of course, quite a bit of previous work on doctor-patient communication, but we're kind of running our own style of this research. But um, like I said, the jury's out and I don't really, you know, have, have an answer. But I do think that we should always really take into account the, the type of patient that, that you have. So the way I see these four models, the Emmanuel and Emmanuel four models of doctor-patient relation is is not as some kind of ranking or some kind of you know here i give you four and I, and i show you this one is the best but it they sort of stand in a grid where one or the other might work a little bit better depending on what else is going on in the situation that you have at hand and that's why I think it's very important for clinicians to think about these things and to think about communication per se. So think about what is the goal of communication? What is because you know if if trying to communicate more and more with the patient simply isn't getting the outcome that we would like to to get, then maybe a different model is is more appropriate. And in it, I suppose just to summarize what those four models are from Emmanuel, Emmanuel, seeing as there in front of me, is patient-led, shared, deliberative, and practitioner-led. I suppose practitioner-led was the traditional model of medicine or healthcare where the practitioner is the one that held the knowledge and expertise and would just pretty much dictate the way that things would go. But I think what you're saying, which I agree with, is that it's that the nature of complexity and individuality of people that there will be times when these different models might might be more suitable and to just make a carpet carpet or blanket rule that you, it must always be patient-led mm-hmm. and never move between would seem to be a very unpatient-led or unperson-centered way of practicing that you're again dictating that everyone gets the same approach where i'd imagine there'd be some movement or fluidity there right and I think this was, to some extent, also the message in Tarman's article, an, an expert in what? So th- there's a risk of putting too much burden on the patient. And it's very nice to talk about patient knowledge. And clearly, it, it is important and it shouldn't be ignored that the patient does have very important knowledge. And in the first place, it the patient has knowledge about their values. That's very important. And and what they want, what, what mm-hmm. kind of risk they might want to take. But then even then, even especially when you talk about risk, sorry for the playing with words now, but it, it, it's very risky to put risk considerations on the patient. So people don't really know how to think about risk very well. They, 
we 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 make a lot of um, mistakes when we think about risk. There are you know many fallacies there involved. So when when you're asking a patient to take a risk, well, in the first place, you should, as a clinician, as an expert, you should know how to present the risk in the right way. You can paradoxically. Mm, and, and, and sometimes um, unintendedly, you might even mislead a patient by presenting them a risk scenario in the wrong way. And we know from the theory of framing behavioral sciences, we know that the way you frame a problem, you will induce a certain attitude. So, you know, you might involuntarily present a, a risk scenario in the wrong way, which leads to the patient picking a certain outcome rather than another. So, you know, b- before you you tell a patient, so, so here's your risk scenario, what do you do? Well, you need to know what the ability of that patient is to deal with that kind of risk scenario, what their, even what their maybe education is to some extent, knowing how, how much they would be able to, to understand the problem mm-hmm. in the first place. And in some cases, it might be better to, make a, you know, use your own judgment as a clinician, maybe to give what you think could be the best option. And I think what the overriding principle there is, is to know your patient. So rather than kind of blindly just applying a practitioner led approach, because that's the, they're the kind of traditions of of medicine or practice at the time, that you would be making a more deliberate, talking about playing with words, a deliberate intention to, for example, take a more practitioner-led approach because you know the patient at that moment. For whatever you've engaged with them, you've spoken to them, you've related to them, you've been interested in, mm-hmm. you know, what's going on, their ability to make some of these judgments themselves, then you can change your approach. And so it's a different, it's, it's different than just automatically adopting a practitioner-led approach, but actually it's more intentional based on the person and their situation and their values, etc. Yes, I, I mean I agree, and that's probably the the hardest challenge. Um, I take it. I, I imagine I'm, I'm not a clinician, but I imagine as clinician, getting to know your patient is the most time-consuming part of the practice. And unfortunately, I guess especially in modern healthcare, where um, resources need to be maximized and Time is of essence, right? And, but sometimes cutting on time, cutting on interaction time between patient and clinician actually affects exactly what, what you were saying, the ability of the clinician to actually get to know the patient. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs and check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain and I'll see you next time.